Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Hannah Myers. She's the director of policing and public safety at the Manhattan Institute. Hannah formerly worked for the NYPD as an intelligence analyst and team leader. She's here to discuss crime in the city from the attack on the subways perpetrated last week to the broader trends and perceptions of disorder. Hannah, thanks very much for joining us on 10 Blocks. Thank you for having me. Delighted. Uh, Last week, as everybody knows, a man named Frank James launched an attack against strap hangers in a subway car and platform in Brooklyn. Uh, He was caught about 30 hours later. Uh, following a lot of speculation about his motives and the alleged shortcomings of the investigation, including apparently malfunctioning security cameras. Um, Now, you know, that the dust has settled, I wonder if you could explain where things are and what happened from the time James entered the subway system to the time he was caught 30 hours later. Sure. You know, coming from a counterterrorism background, as I do, and a counter-radicalization background, he is what you might call an angry loser. Someone who, he's 62 now, had decades of combative relationships with family and coworkers and neighbors, something that kept him just bouncing around from job to job and house to house. And then he moved online and for the last like two decades had a lot of presence on social media complaining about every possible race with every possible grievance and ideation for violent retribution. Blacks, whites, Jews for sure, Latinos, Asians, a grievance against all of them and more recently against Mayor Adams and the subway system in New York and the mental health system, just about an education system. So we know that in 2011, he bought a handgun legally, a semi-automatic handgun in Ohio. And then more recently in Philadelphia, where he'd been living, he he bought a bunch of uh, firecrackers and various things that he brought with him, drove a U-Haul from Philadelphia to the city. That morning, he put on a construction vest and a hat and a disguise, and he took all this stuff, and he got into a Manhattan-bound end train in Brooklyn, went a few stops, then uh, opened the smoke bomb canister uh, as it was pulling into 36th Street Station and Sunset Park. And what seems like happened is then he, he dropped down toward the ground to maybe avoid the fog of the smoke. And from there, fired off 33 rounds of this gun, miraculously only hitting 10 people. And probably because he was so low to the ground, only you know hitting legs and hands and not killing anybody, which is amazing and wonderful. It seems like maybe that's the reason. And then uh, escaping out of the station, taking off his disguise, leaving behind a duffel bag with a hatchet and rope and undetonated devices, and then going on the lam essentially for 30 hours, as you said. And it seems like what happened is uh, the response was very clean and professional from there. The, the MTA officials, the people driving the trains, responded very clear-headedly to, to the chaos that they were seeing. They got passengers onto other trains, got them out of the station. Passengers helped each other get clear. 
Emergency vehicles came very quickly, got people to the hospitals, another reason why we didn't see anybody die. And right away, all the law, law enforcement tools were there, both from the NYPD and from FBI, and all the different agencies that really work together very, very closely in New York, especially when there's something like this that has a, a terrorism angle. Because if there's one thing we've learned since 9-11, it's that everyone has to work, all the agencies have to be sharing information at a really, really granular level, um, really, really together. So right away, you know, they found the U-Haul key that he left behind and a credit card that he left behind. And I, I think very rapidly identified him by those things. And uh, NYPD has an incredible intelligence apparatus that in the last couple of years has really shifted from the jihadi terrorism focus that was so important and vital and 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 urgent and immediate in the last couple of years, and more toward kind of violent extremism. You know, they have a, a whole team devoted to racially and ethnically motivated violent extremism. And a lot of that involves uh, mining online activity that that talks about New York, that talks about hate and and ha makes plans of violence. So it wouldn't it was not hard for them, I'm sure, to to connect once they very conveniently had his name and the identifying clues of the U-Haul uh, and the credit card, you know, to identify who he was, uh, I'm sure a long time before they announced it to everybody else. Then they circulated his picture. And it seems like the next morning, he wandered into a McDonald's in the East Village, sort of blubbering and crying and used someone's phone and called in the tip on himself, Frank James did, and said, I'll be wandering around here and in fact did wander around the McDonald's in the East Village. A number of people also saw him and called it in and the police quickly zeroed in on him, took him in without incident, and he was charged in federal court in Brooklyn in the Eastern District on terrorism-related charges associated with mass attack in a subway system. And, and that's where we are right now. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, the, this was obviously a very extreme event, but in, in many ways, it's, it's a kind of microcosm of New York's growing problem with public safety. Um, you know, as you, as you noted, uh, James seems to be mentally ill. Um, you know, he, he had described his own experience in a Bronx mental health facility, uh, in one of his YouTube rants. Um, you know, he, he was disgusted with homelessness, uh, on the trains. Um, he was also a serial offender, uh, right, uh, uh, who had been arrested multiple times, I think nine previous times. So I wonder, you know, if, if those particular issues, uh, mental illness, serious mental illness going untreated, homelessness on the trains, and the repeat offender problems, are, are these in part responsible for the rising crime in New York City? And if so, how much progress has the city been making in turning things around here? What I think is so interesting about the, the subway attack and all the things that you're saying is that even if, let's say that we had the best criminal justice policies possible, intelligent and comprehensive and all working smoothly in New York City, it's possible that in this particular instance, James would have slipped through, still committed this crime, still still gotten as far as he did. We don't know. It's, it's not totally clear in this particular case. But 
as you say, he touches on every contentious point relating to criminal justice policy in New York right now. Mental illness, hate crimes, subway crimes, gun violence. And in all of these areas, what we do know is that there are so many missed opportunities, you know, Swiss cheese holes of missed opportunities that we've created over the past few years through changes in policy missed opportunities to identify and deter other people similar to to Frank James in many ways, you know, who touch on these various problems who otherwise we could identify, put into treatment, put into supervision, put incarcerate where necessary. And we've just piece by piece dismantled our ability to do that. And I think even though we talk about it more in policing, it is also very, 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 very problematic in prosecution policy. And, And this is something that started before COVID and before George Floyd, where we, you know, when you decriminalize, when you stop prosecuting a lot of the lower level offenses that that are very commonly perpetrated by people with, you know, that are connected to drug addiction and mental illness, we've taken away all of the leverage that we had through the criminal justice system to get people treated. If you look at a jurisdiction like Queens, they have had, they were, the, I believe, the first of the boroughs to have, and they all have now, uh, alternative alternatives to incarceration program where they have in-house in the DA's office a whole system for identifying people who really need mental health treatment. And that could be, you know, ambulatory where they're getting it and but they're not, or residential where they're being held in to get the treatment either way. But for decades, they, there was the ability to say to, you know, the uh, a criminal, an offender's defense attorney, this is your, your, your client is going to be incarcerated or you can, tr- you can choose treatment, this mandatory treatment. And it was very, very, very effective. And it helped scores and scores and scores of people a year. Now that that's basically been dismantled and you have, you know, the, the ATI alternative to incarceration kind of twiddling their thumbs because defense attorneys know that if they just wait it out, their client will be released. And, and a lot of that has to do with things like discovery reform that passed in 2020 in New York State that makes it so hard for line prosecutors in these offices to successfully bring cases and and prosecute cases. It makes it so laborious that they just have to triage constantly. So it's not worth it to them to take the time, you know, from a from a purely getting the job that they are required to do done. It's not worth it to them to take the time to work on all these lower level cases. And they'll often run out of time on the clock to to assemble all the material that they need to get these cases prosecuted. So it's not worth so the defense attorneys know if they wait it out, they're probably this, you know, guy, their their client who robbed Dwayne Reed with a hypodermic needle in his hand, you know, to threaten people 20 times this year, he's probably going to get dismissed because the it, the system isn't moving smoothly enough to allow prosecutors to get to that case. And and what's so sad is that not only is it in the public's best interest, of course, for, for someone who is committing crime because of a drug addiction or because of mental illness uh, to, to be in some kind of supervised care, it's, it's best for the public, but it's also best for the, the client. And, and look, defense attorneys, it's not necessarily their job to think about the whole life of their client or, or it's not practically what they're willing to do. Um, but very often, you know, what would happen is the families of people with addiction or mental illness would be the ones that would call in the police to report crimes that they were committing because they knew 
they didn't have the leverage over their family member to get them treatment and to keep them in treatment. But, you know, the judicial process did. And so that's one small example of ways that we are creating all these all these systems that we used to have to to prevent these crimes before they happened. Yeah, it's it's quite striking. It's um, you know, the 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 big question here is uh, the the mayor, Mayor Eric Adams, uh, whose campaign was built around the idea of um, you know controlling crime, uh, and he got elected in part based on that. I think chiefly based on that. Uh, but you know his his promises to bring crime down down they've run into reality. Uh, crime isn't down uh, since he took office. Um, it's it's continuing to rise. Um, and you know, looking at his record so far, it seems it seems to be a kind of mixed bag. So on the one hand, he's he's talking the right talk uh, rhetorically. He's he's emphasizing the importance of quality life policing again. Uh, he's announced a subway safety plan. Uh, he's talking about, you know, br- bringing down the the homeless encampments and getting their residents into treatment. And he's pushed unsuccessfully so far for bail reform in Albany. Uh, but you know, on the other hand, as as Ralph Mangual, our our colleague, has recently argued, he's attributed the crime spike to the availability of guns, which seems wrong. That's counter to evidence. Um, you know, perceptions matter in politics. And, and Adams' tenure is, I think, going to be defined by whether he makes New Yorkers feel safe once again. Certainly that's going to be key to getting tourists coming back to the city. So I wonder, you know, looking at, I mean, I realize he's only been in office for, for a short time, but what's your, your take on how he's doing so far? And, you know, what, what effect this, uh, this horrific attack might have on his plans going forward. I think all that you say is true. I mean, crime is going up. I I think maybe he came in hoping that just talking tougher and kind of backing up the police in in a lot of ways, at least rhetorically, would have a larger effect than it did in, in stopping and reversing the trend of crime, which it hasn't really. I think it's good that he is talking about quality of life policing. He's very, very quick to say it is not broken windows. But I think the, the sort of the thinking of the quality of life policing mentality has to go further, especially because he has very little power himself to change the prosecution side of things. And the prosecution is a large part of the deterrence and consequences and incapacitation factors that prevent people from committing crime. If you have a gun and you know there's a mandatory minimum for carrying an illegal gun, it really factors into whether or not you're going to carry it around and whether or not you're going to shoot it. And I think we've seen, and this is another touch point of Frank James's attack, is that even people who are you know, driven by grievances that go way past rationality are still rational in the decisions that they're making. And even with people who were more apparently mentally ill than Frank James, who have committed violent crime in the last few months, Simon Marshall, who pushed Michelle Goh to her death, Asamad Nash, who stabbed Christina Lee to death, even they were making rational choices, even if it's in as, so, as small as, you know, not following home and sta- trying to stab an enormous bodybuilder man, but instead choosing slight women to follow, to push or to follow home and stab. You know, there, there is a rationality behind it. So 
So since um, the mayor can't can't increase the consequences from a prosecution side, I think it's important that he do, does increase it more from the law enforcement side. I, another big factor in why gun violence has gone up is that there are there are fewer touch points with the police, points of engagement. We, when stop and frisk was more robust, it had a, a huge impact because people know if you have, think there's a high chance that you're going to stop and chat with a cop, just chat with a cop. You know, he's going to stop you and talk to you. It really changes the equation in whether you bring your gun out of your house with you because these the guns have been around a really long time. You know, it's not that suddenly they got airdropped onto New York and now we have a problem. You know, the guns are around and we can't sort of vacuum suck them all up and, and lock them away. We need to go back to thinking about, well, what what actually deterred people from carrying the guns around and shooting other people with them? And, you know, now if you think no one's going to stop you, no one's going to talk to you, no one's going to, I mean, it sounds minor, but it's a huge part of the equation of why people are carrying guns around. So, so more proactive policing where police are actually stepping in. And I think what we see in the subway is that in many ways, the subway is like a microcosm cauldron of all the cause and effect aspects of criminal justice that we see above ground. So whereas for the last few years, not only with if someone was evading fare, would they not be sort of stopped and bothered by police? But, you know, if you're if you're smoking uh, a joint on the subway car or a cigarette or K2, as I witnessed with my kids uh, a little while back, or if you're acting erratically on the platform or just there, you know, lying down and, and doing no good, Whereas we've seen for the last few years, police really were under a mandate from policymakers and also from New Yorkers who made it very clear, we don't feel comfortable with you stepping in and doing anything. Now, uh, I, I think increasingly, and I think this will have an effect, but it has to be even more, they they are going to step in and say, and, and remove people from the trains. It's not okay to smoke. I'm not just going to stand here while you smoke and hope that it makes you stop. I'm going to walk over and tell you it's not all right. And if we have a problem, take you off the train and process you appropriately. And something with the, the subway plan that Mayor Adams put out with Governor Hochul is they they put into place more healthcare workers, homeless outreach to go in and, and offer care. And I think one thing that needs to shift is to, to give that more edge. And this is something Nicole Gelinas wrote about in her excellent piece about New York City subway crime over the last two years. But, you know, there has to be a little more. It's, it's again, just the leverage of the criminal justice system that not only helps public safety, but it helps people who are offenders or will be offenders get treatment, get care, get to somewhere they should be. Because, you know, we've seen, what, seven deaths in the subway system last year and the year before after having uh, you know, basically one death a year for a decade with twice the ridership. And a lot of those deaths are related to people who have mental illness or to homeless people who were the victims. And if if police come along and say, hey, you're acting erratically in the train, I'm, I'm going to take you out of the train system right now. Or, hey, you're sleeping here on the platform. This isn't a place to sleep. Let's find you somewhere else. You know, it, it sounds minor, but that's how you prevent larger criminal actions and how you help New Yorkers thrive. And, and I think there has to be a mind, a mental shift among New Yorkers, which I'm hoping is happening, especially with the subway attack, where instead of having this kind of tunnel vision where they don't like that cops are escorting poor, these 
sad cases out of the subway system because it's not nice, where they step back and say, actually, criminal justice is a much more complicated, much more nuanced set of cause and effect and incentives and disincentives. And we need to we need to be smart and leverage that for everybody's for everybody's good. You know, by by the end of the de Blasio years, uh, police in New York City were pretty demoralized, I would say. Um, certainly the combination of the de Blasio administration and the criminal justice reforms that you, you've mentioned several times in Albany, uh, which have made it hard to, you know, harder for police to function in the city for sure. I wonder, you know, what's your what's your sense? You you used to work for the NYPD. You, you talk to police all the time. Uh, what is their feeling toward Adams and toward the situation in the city right now? Are they continuing to be demoralized or do they feel like maybe things are going to start turning in a in a more sensible direction? I think it's a mixed bag. You know, I, I think there's a degree of demoralization that comes from the larger picture that invo- involves prosecution where, okay, even if you have the go ahead to start arresting, you know, to you should be arresting shoplifters, you should be arresting, you know, people selling drugs on the street, you know, you should be stepping in more. But then if you're going to see them back out on the street again the next day, because you can't even arraign them on the spot under bail reform, there's scads of offenses that you have to just issue an arrestee uh, a desk appearance ticket, which is like a please come to court later card. And all of these things are demoralizing when you've committed your life to helping with the public feel safe and enforcing the law and and it's getting undermined. You can't clear cases. You can't have any lasting effect. I think that's a huge hurdle. But I do think it helps. It, the, the rhetoric helps, I think. And this was another, um, our, our fellow Robert Verbruggen wrote a great paper about de-policing and how to put how to combat that that demoralization in a police force and w- one thing that's really important is just feeling like you're you're supported internally that that your higher ups know what you're you know have your back that that and also that you know the mayor has your back is is a big deal if city council really had your back that would make you feel better but i i do think that that's significant okay well well thank you very much hannah uh, don't forget to check out Hannah Meyer's work on the City Journal website. That's www.city-journal.org. We'll link to her author page in the description. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. Uh, as always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please give us a nice ratings on iTunes. And, and Hannah Meyer, thanks very, very much for, for coming on and talking today. Thank you for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.